Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those who are here and those who will listen to the, the message online. We ask you to guide and lead us as we open this study and look at your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 13. You should be able to finish up tonight. Verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which therefore have sinned, and to all other, that I, if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to your word is not weak, but is in mighty in you, for though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know that you, you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except that you be reprobates. But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates. Okay. Paul here is starting to say, you know, this is the third time I'm planning to come to you. And I think he's expressing he's my feeling is he's expressing a little bit of frustration with them. You know, I, it's one thing to come back and visit you, but now I'm having to come back a third time to, to correct issues. We know that he wrote at least four letters to, to the Corinthians because of all the problems they had. And Corinth was a church that had lots of problems. And first they were being too easy on people, then they were being too hard on people, and Paul keeps telling them, you know, get this right. And he says, I'm getting ready to come to you a third time. And then he says an interesting statement. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, there is a lot of debate on this particular phrase, but I believe that it refers to the law. In Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, God says that you need two or more witnesses to be able to convict somebody of of a crime. Uh, he says you will never convict somebody on the, on the word of one witness. And these witnesses had to agree. So I really believe that Paul's saying, you know, I'm hearing these things, and I'm hearing them from more than one, and I've been there enough times. He goes, we have three witnesses against you, at least three witnesses against you, and he's saying we have the proof. Now, some people believe that he's talking about his visits, and I don't really think that that's true. But he's, but he's saying... I'm hearing these things, and it's disturbing me. And one of the things that are very important is that we don't listen to accusations of, of things, and unless there's with two or, witnesses, two or more witnesses, and just what Jesus said, you know, this as well, you need two or, two or more witnesses, and he goes, don't listen to an attack on, you know, by one. And so Paul's saying, you know, these accusations have been established. They've been, they are set Set still, and he goes. I told you before, and now foretell you, if I as if I were present the second time, but and being absent, I now write them to you. Wherefore, here two four, which two here two four. All right, it's going to be one. Can't even read. Which have here two four <laughs> sinned, and all other. But if I come. I will not spare or abstain. He goes, if I have to come back, I am not going to spare people uh, 
with correction. What's the necessity for, for him saying two or three? What would the three demand like a higher? Well, in, in Deuteronomy, we'll read, the, we'll read the Deuteronomy section here. It's Deuteronomy 17. I believe that he's quoting from, from the law, uh, God's standard for listening to accus you know, accusations and, and correction of accusations. Um, Deuteronomy 17.6, at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death but at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. So I think, I think Paul's reaching back and saying, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing it now from two or three witnesses. And now I'm going to come in and I'm going to correct. He goes, it would be one thing if I heard it from one. If I heard it from one, there's nothing to correct. There's nothing to, to look at. But I'm hearing it from plenty of witnesses that you've got issues. And, we, and if you were, remember way back when we first started this book, he talked about the different people who had ridden him and and made the, made the statements that things were going on. And so he's saying, you know, I'm hearing that there's trouble. And this is something that is important because if you've ever been in even conflict resolution, one person can try to stir up trouble for a lot of people and not be true. But when you start hearing things from the same, you know, two or three people, then you go, okay, now we've got some problem. And I think that, I think that's what he's saying here, is that I'm hearing this. I'm hearing multiple complaints. And we're told by Paul himself, you know, against an elder, don't accept an accusation unless it's by the mouth of two. And Jesus said the same thing. You know, for an elder, it takes two witnesses to bring the accusation. And here, I think he's just saying, there's problems in your church, and I'm hearing it. That's my belief on this. There's, it, the concordances are all over on that statement. They, they, they don't really know what it's being talked about. But I think he's reaching back, because Paul is a scholar. He's a, he's a Pharisee. He's from the Sanhedrin. I think he's reaching back to the law and saying, Oh, yeah, I agree with that part of it. We, we, I have plenty of reason now come and correct this. Because I'm not hearing it just from one person. I'm not even hearing it from two. I'm hearing it from three or four people. And I know that this is true. And I believe that's what he's saying. That's what I believe. And again, if you read the different commentaries, they're, they're all over the board on where they think this comes from. Um, because there is this question of what exactly is he talking about? And I just believe that he's saying that he's, that he's hearing this. Now, some people refer to the end of the chapter where his, where his benediction says, the grace of God, uh, the love, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit being the three witnesses. And there's a lot of people that will say the three witnesses are the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean. They're, they're all over the, yeah. the map there. But I believe that he's reaching back to the Old Testament and saying, I'm hearing these accusations from plenty enough witnesses to know that there's issues. Um, and will I be dogmatic about that? Absolutely not, because I don't know. Well, to me, it's just like a reinforcement Right. That's what I believe. And I'm hearing this is why, I'm, why I've written this particular letter. I'm now at the end. If you guys can't work things out, then I'm going to have to come. And if I come, I'm not going to spare anybody's feelings because I want to get this church straightened out. Um, that's what I see when I read this. And he goes, you know, and then the verse 2 says, you know, if I were present, I would be not abstain to write to them which have, which have sinned and to all others. 
And this is what he's saying. And if I come again, I'm not going to spare you. I'm not going to spare the. I'm not going to spare feelings because I've. Almost, you almost hear him saying, "I've wasted enough time on you guys," even though he's not saying that. That's not the pastor's heart, but he's kind of getting frustrated at this point because he'd like to be working with other churches, and he keeps coming back to this church. It just isn't getting itself established the way he would like, and uh, we see this over and over again. There are certain churches that just have problems. Even in our day, there are certain churches that just seem to have problems. And until they get their, basically they end up getting somebody who just comes in and says, I'm not sparing anybody's feeling. If you want to leave, you leave. If you drive me out, you drive me out. But we're going to get this thing solved. And I think that's where Paul's, Paul's talking about. And then he goes in verse 3, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, to you, which to you it is not weak, but is mighty in you. He goes, you seek. And this means you're seeking to find a proof that Jesus is speaking in him. And we, we see here that this has been the pattern of Paul's book, a whole letter. You know, you've challenged whether I'm an apostle. You've challenged, you know, that I wasn't enough of a pastor. You've challenged whether, you know, whether, whether I had enough presence. And he goes, you keep challenging this. You're looking for the proof that God is working me. And the gifts of the, pro- the apostle weren't enough. The fact that I started the church wasn't enough. Uh, you go, and, but, you know, it's not, what I've been telling you is not weak, but it is mighty in you. And God's word, this is a wonderful thing about God's word. It gets in us, it grows, and it fills us, and it's mighty. It gives us victory. It, it shows us how to live godly, live righteous. And Paul is saying, you know, you've got this answer in God's word is mighty in you. And he sees some, he's seen some growth. The first letter he says, you've got this guy living with his mother-in-law, kick him out, kick him out of the church until he repents. At the beginning of this letter, he says, okay, you kicked him out, he repented, now let him back in the church. This is, you know, this is what I'm saying. They started out way too easy. Then they went way too hard. And so hard that they weren't going to let the guy back into church. And Paul is saying, you know, you're growing. I see the growth. It's not as fast as I would like. And this is something that's difficult sometimes for, for teachers. We, we grow. We watch people grow. And it's like, okay, come on, grow. <laughs> grow. <laughs> grow up, you know. And we watch. We say, yeah, there, there's, there's progress. And we take great pride in the, in the progress. But Paul is saying, it's mighty in you. Yeah. And, you know, at one point Peter will tell us, you know, as newborn babes desire sincere milk of the word, he goes, but move forward. You know, there, there's a place where he says, you should be able to eat meat now when you're still needing a bottle. And I think that's where Paul is with the Corinthian church. He goes, you guys are still worrying about bottle stuff. Let's get you, let's get you moved forward. And he's going, this is powerful. And, you know, for us, we've got to keep this in mind. God's word, when we hear it, when we're taught it, when we read it, is mighty. It's powerful. It's, it's got great power in us. Verse 4, so, For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him in the power of God towards you. And this is very powerful and I'm not sure that I totally agree with this. Jesus was po- crucified through weakness. 
he allowed himself to be doing, which I guess is perceived weak by human standards, but it was a pretty big deal. And when he told Pilate, you would have no power except it was given to you, because I can call 10,000 angels. You know, it was quite a powerful statement for Jesus to die on the cross. Human-wise, it looked weak. You know, what, a, what a weak man. He, he let himself be captured. He let himself be killed. He didn't, didn't fight. But it was a great strength in being crucified for Jesus alone. You know, Jesus said, I could call 10 legions of angels. But even beyond that, though, all he had to do was think about getting off the cross. And he could have gotten off the cross. But he says, for us, he says, it's our example. Jesus died in weakness. He let his flesh be killed so that he could be resurrected in power. And that's Paul's point that he's making. He goes, we need to do the same thing. We let our flesh be crucified, which to the world looks weak. The world looks at us and says, you guys are just a bunch of weak Christians. You, you've got a... Um, crutch, a cane, whatever you wanted to, you know, you, you just leaning on God. And the answer is, yes, we are, and I love it. You know, I'll lean on God all day if, because that's a better cane than what they're, what they're leaning on. They, if, at the very best, they're leaning on their flesh, which was weak. And at the very worst, they're leaning on all the sin and everything that they could be, be leaning on. And Paul's saying, you know, you let your flesh be crucified, just like Jesus was crucified in the flesh so that he could live in power, you know, which he already had power, but he was going to live forever in power. He goes, and he's using that as our example. He's bringing Jesus kind of on our, on our level, and he says, you need to die. That's what he told the Galatians. You know, you're crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, you live. That's the statement. We live in power because God indwells us. He gets rid of the flesh. He comes into us and indwells us. And we live with power of God toward us. And this weakness literally means weak, and then we live. We, we have real life. You know, before, we're, before we're a Christian, we have bios life. We're alive in the flesh and no life. After that, Jesus uses the word zoe life, which is true spiritual life. And one of the things I've, uh, that I've brought out to people is when we're born first, we have a body and animated life, but we don't have a spiritual life. We, we're not three parts like we're supposed to be because we do not have the true spiritual life. We have an animated body. But, you know, God's saying, I, I, want you, I created you to have more than an animated body. Uh, Adam and Eve had everything. They had the, the, the life of the, of the spirit as well as the body. body spirit, uh, soul, body, and spirit. And that soul is the animation, the, the animation of life. And God's saying, I want to make you alive all the way through the spirit. And when we get saved, we get that spirit in us. And we, are, we start to really understand what life is. Because God has truly made us alive. Body, soul, and spirit and we now can intimately have a relationship with God that we cannot have without the Spirit being given to us. New birth that Nicodemus was told about. He goes, you're born of spirit and, and blood. Now I want you uh, of, of water and blood. Now I want to bring you in with the Spirit. A brand new life. And when you get saved, you know what that means. You get that life in you, and all of a sudden, everything is different. The way you interact with the world, the way you see the world. And the way you deal with God, the way we deal with the word. 
Now, over and over, people say, well, before I got saved, I, I, started, I tried to read the Bible, and I couldn't understand a word, it's, a word about the Bible. Well, without the Spirit, we really can't understand the Word, because they're just words. Good words, knowledgeable words. <laughs> but we start getting the Spirit, and the Spirit lifts the words off the page and says, I wrote these things, let me tell you what they're all about. And all of a sudden, they become real. They become life. And we eat the Word. And this is, and I think it's really a very serious thing. Getting into God's word feeds our spirit. And it's very important to feed our spirit. And I've seen people who don't read their Bible. They don't come to church. They'll say they're a Christian, but you talk to them about anything spiritual, and it's like, doesn't compute, doesn't make any sense. Now, I don't know if they're not saved or they're just so immature in their salvation that nothing makes sense to them because they haven't been even feeding themselves on the basics. And, you know, we come to church, we get a teacher teaching us, and that's good to start with. You know, when we're newborn in Christ, we need people to teach us. You know, take that food, get it, get it pre-digested, make it a little simpler. But there needs to come that point where we take food that's our food. And very important, we get in and we study, looking at it. And it says, this is your power. This is the power for life. This is what gets us through our hardships, puts us in Christ, gives us this power that we need. And then in verse 5, he says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove yourselves, know that you are not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except that you be reprobate. So he says, examine. And this is the whole idea of to test. I need to look at my life and say, God, am I growing spiritually? Am I one of your children? And this is important because I've always said the scariest verse to me in the Bible is when Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And you look at his long list of things and all the righteous things they did. We, they visited the, 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 the prisons. They fed the, fed the needy. They took care of the, the, the widows and the orphans and and gave food and all of this. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And this is why he's saying, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Do you, do you really know God? And I challenge us on this a lot because I want us to know. Are we in the faith? Because when you know that you know that you know, <laughs> nobody's going to convince you that you're not. Nobody's going to convince me that I'm not a Christian. Because I've gotten to know God in a very intimate, personal way. I examine myself and say, yes, I want his word. I want him. I want to serve him. And it's not just knowledge. It's not just you know, experience. I, want, I know him, and I want to know him more. And this is important. You know, and Paul is challenging the Corinthians. <laughs> examine yourselves. Are you in, do you know him? Are you in the faith? And... So then he says, prove yourself. And this word is dokimoso, which is we've talked about. Those are the, the coin merchants that would actually weigh the coins and make sure they hadn't been shaved. And if you got a coin from one of them, you knew that it had, hadn't been altered. Um, because back in those days, the, the, the coins were made out of gold and silver, and people would take and shave the edges off of them. And if you shaved enough coins, you could make your own uh, ingot or, or coin later on. And that coin, you know, you just, you know, enough people started shaving the coin, eventually you didn't have a coin that was worth what it was supposed to be worth. And so he says, know 
Approve yourselves. And this is very important, that we look at ourselves and say, God, I am seeking you. I am desiring you. And, you know, it's not for me to decide whether somebody's saved or not. It's not my business. It's God's business. It's, it's their business. And this one of the sad things in America is so many people say they're a Christian, and you start looking at them and saying, well, that's not really the way Christians live. You've never gone to church. You never talk about the Bible. You never talk about God, but you say you're a Christian. Well, you come to church once, once or twice a year, whether you need it or not. <laughs> and not your job to judge them, but by the same token, you look at them and say, have you proved yourself? Have you done things that say, I am a Christian? And here he's saying, prove yourselves, and then know you not your own selves. And this, is, this word here is epinosis, epigenosis, which means full knowledge, complete knowledge, even above knowledge. He goes, do you know your own self, or know not your own self in this case? And we're told by Paul that we're not to know ourselves after the flesh. We're not to know ourselves even. We're to know Jesus in us. And this is, you know, we sing several songs about this because I, I think this is so important. We oftentimes think we're weak and God says we're strong. We think we have nothing and God says we have everything. And we get to know ourselves. We know our flesh. And say, God, you know, I don't love you enough. I don't, I don't deserve anything of God. And God says, of course you don't deserve it. I've given you a gift of grace. And if we are trying to know ourselves after the flesh, God says, you're wrong. Your, your, your opinion of yourself is wrong. When we are in Christ, we have a gift that nothing else even comes close to. And this is what Paul's saying. You know not yourself how that Jesus is in you except you be reprobates or unapproved. And your God is in us. If we are his child, he is in us. And we need to understand that. Jesus is in us. And because he's in us, he is going to do the work that makes us who he says we are. When we have him in us, we will become strong because he will make sure that we're strong. And this is so much fun. I like watching people let God control their life and see the things they do. It's, it, you watch them and you go, wow, that's, look what God is doing. Look at, look at this. Look at you know, look how God is changing this person. And you watch them get stronger. You watch them get, get over their sins. You watch them get over their areas that they have weakness in. And you say, God, I like watching you work. And then you look at your own life and say, God, I really like watching how you change me as well. And this is what Paul's saying. Unless you're a reprobate, Jesus is in you, changing you. In other words, not approved, not one of his children. And this is something that people really have to understand. God is going to make the changes, always. He makes the changes unless you are not his child. And that's where we go back to when Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. They would say, you know, hey, you know, we're, 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 we're yours, we're, we're all in you. And then he says, but I trust that you shall know that you are not reprobates. He says, the only way you don't have God working in you is if you're a reprobate. He goes, but I trust or I really believe that you shall know that you are not reprobates. If you have Jesus in you, you are not a reprobate because he has crucified the flesh. 
or is crucifying the flesh, and he's going to sanctify us. This is something that Paul's saying. The only way he's not going to be in you is if you're a reprobate, and if you're his, you're not a reprobate. It's a very powerful statement that he's making. He goes, he's in you unless you're a reprobate, and if you're his child, you're not a reprobate. You know, and it's, he's being very powerful here, saying, this isn't you. So he is in you, and you need to know him, unless you're not in him. And this is why it's important for us to know, God, did I mean what I say when I put my trust in you? And this is very important. And as we've said before, you know, we are to believe, put our full trust in him. And that means no other way. If Jesus isn't the answer, I have, I have not hedged my bets. It's not, okay, Jesus, I'm going to try you. And if you're not, you know, and I'm going to go over here and I'm going to try Buddha. You know, just, just in case, maybe if you're not enough, I'm going to follow Buddha. And I'm going to put a little bit of Muslim over here. And I'm going to put a little bit of Hindu over here. And you know, you're, my, you're my main bet, but I'm going to hedge my bets. You haven't trusted in him if you're doing that. And this is what's very important. You know, what is trust? And I, I think the greatest example I've ever used is the repelling example. You know, you, at some point, you put your whole weight on that rope as you go down the steep side. And you're going, OK, if this rope doesn't hold me, I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit bottom. That's where we're supposed to be with Jesus. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, then I'm without, without hope. And that's very important for us to be able to, to look at. He is who he says he is. I know that he's who he says he is because he's proved himself over and over in my life to be who he says he is. And so for me, it's not even a faith step anymore. It has become real. Here's a faith step to put my, put my full weight on, the, on Jesus. But since then, he has proved that he is faithful. And it's like, okay, God, I am happy. And as I've said to many people, if there is no afterlife... What I've had in this life is so much better than what anybody else is talking about. I have missed nothing. But because of the blessings I have in this life, I know that he has told me the truth <laughs> about the afterlife. And it's a powerful thing. And looking forward to the day of seeing him in heaven and seeing others in heaven and being able to go, wow, all of this undeserved gift. And realizing it's all undeserved. You know, not, not earned, not, not bought, just given. Verse 8 says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that you should appear approved, but you should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong, and this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. So Paul's going, I pray to God that you do no evil. Okay? And I love what he says, not that you should appear approved. Right? Paul is saying you're not to do these good things just to look good. And that's what a lot of people do in the good. They want to look good. You know, if I'm nice to people, if I'm doing, you know, if I'm being kind, if I'm at least for saying I forgive people, he goes, I'm looking good. I'm appearing approved. And this is something that Paul is saying 
don't do this. Okay, we're not doing it to appear dokimos approved. We want to be approved. And that means letting God change us. And this is what I say about our actions. Our actions isn't our flesh being disciplined. It's not me with a whip in a chair in, in, in the lion's den with my flesh and putting it in control. It's Jesus coming in and saying, I'm putting your flesh on the cross. It's dead. It's not a problem for you. It's dead. You're going to live through me, and you're going to do the things I want you to do, not because you're just trying to look good. Now, and this is what Jesus said. If you're doing things for appearance sake, you've got your reward. All right? If we're trying to look good in front of people, Jesus said, you got your reward. The people, the people said you were good. They decided you were good. You got your reward. Are you doing it for him? Now, if we do it for him, sometimes people will also recognize because they see it. But my motivation is, I don't care what they think, you know, whoever they are. <laughs> I care what Jesus thinks. And this is important for us. And this is what Paul's saying. Don't do it to be approved. He goes, you do it, and it says, but that we should do that which is honor, honest. I do it because God is working in me. Though we be as reprobates, he goes, in your flesh you're a reprobate, but we're going to do what's honest. We're going to do what Christ has given us. And this is very important. This is where we say Christians will fail. Every Christian will fail. And that's why we don't want to be looking at each other for our strength. You know, well, you know, that person's really good. I'm going to put them up on a pedestal because they're so good. They're so perfect. And then they fail. And we get depressed because they failed. People do that a lot of times with pastors. You know, I, my pastor's really good. He's, he's you know, loving, kind, merciful. And then he has a bad day and everybody, oh, wow, pastor's not as good as we thought he was. Well, you weren't supposed to look at pastor anyway. You were supposed to look at, supposed to look at Jesus. And that's what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But when I don't follow Christ, you follow Christ. And it's very important. He goes, let's be honest. You know, we're going to walk in the honesty of, of God and then I love this, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. What is true is true. Our world is trying to tell you there's no such thing as truth, but there is truth. And if something is true, we can't really fight against it in the long run. We may think we're fighting against it. Our world fights against truth all the time. Uh, we're trying to change all God's rules and make, it, make things happen. And God says, fight all you want. Now, we go up here to, to the top of that cliff and we go, I don't believe in, in gravity, and we step off the cliff. It doesn't matter how much we don't believe in gravity, we're going to fall. Now, people, well, you know, we can, we can use parachutes, we can use, you know, uh, gliders and all these things. Yeah, you can, but you're still knowing at those times that you believe in gravity. Because the very fact that you're using those things are telling you, I believe in gravity. I'm just going to try to use other forces to control gravity. And we, there are other forces that we can control gravity. We can use a parachute and slow down our descent, but we're still going to descend. We can use a hang glider and, and control and be in somewhat control and find some upward currents to, to stay in the air. But eventually, we're going to, gravity is going to win and bring us down. We can control a little bit of it, but gravity will always be in there. If I go up there and say, I don't believe in gravity, gravity is going to win really quick. You know, I don't believe that there's truth. Truth is going to win. I don't believe that God has rules for, 
for marriage. God's truth is going to win out. And we see this over and over again. God's truth always wins. Which is why getting into the word is so great, because we get to learn his truth. And we can start matching up against truth and quit fighting it. You know, when you try to climb up a hill, really a steep hill, gravity keeps trying to pull you down, and you better be in shape you know, to, to beat it, or have the right tools to beat it, or it's going to win. When we fight truth, we will lose, eventually. Because the truth is going to be there. And he says, you know, we can do nothing against the truth ultimately, but for truth. When we agree with truth, life is so much simpler. When I decide to do, God, do things God's way, life is easy. And this is very important for us to understand. God is truth. He is going to win. And then he gets a very interesting statement that most Christians will not like to hear. Verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak. <laughs> and you are strong. This also we wish even for your perfection. When we are weak, we are really strong. Because then we put our whole faith in, in God. And this is what Jesus said. If you want to be first in the kingdom, you're, you know, you're to be last on earth. If you want to be strong in the kingdom, you're to be weak. And we're to show that we do not have great strength. If we try to show off and say, look how strong I am, we're getting man's praise but not God's praise. If we try to say, you know, I, I can do all of these things, God says, no, you, you, don't, even have the, you don't even have the beginning of it. We are weak, and we need to take great joy in the fact that we're weak and God can crucify us because then he can give us his strength. And it, it is not to say that we're weak and then living in sin. Oh, God, you know, look how weak I am. I'm, I'm committing all these sins. He goes, no, that's not what I want. I want you to be weak in yourself so that I can come in and give you strength to be victorious. True victory in Christ is for me to recognize that I am weak and he is everything and have him come in and dwell in me and change me and make me who I am. And it says, even for your perfection, to be made complete. God comes into us and his whole purpose in our walk with him is to make us complete. Sanctification. God says, okay, we're going to strip out this weakness and we're going to put me in, your, in, in its place and we're going to set you aside for me and make, make you strong. And this is very important for us to understand. Our strength is in Christ. Without him, we can do nothing. You know, and that's what, he's, what we're told. Without Christ, I can do nothing. And the more we realize that, the better off we are. God, I am weak. I can do nothing without you, but in you, I can do all things. There is nothing that can stop me when I walk in Christ to getting things done the way he wants them done. And then he says, therefore, in verse 10, I write these things be in absence, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. He goes, when I come, I want to build you up. And he goes, I'm writing these things to try to be kind to you. I want to edify, because when I write it down, I can go back and I can edit it. <laughs> Once I'm there and speaking to you, it may not be the same thing. And he's saying, I'm writing this because I want to use edification. I want to build you up and not destroy or demolish you. And this is the key for us when we deal with one another. Our way that we work together in the body is to edify, to build people up. 
We want to encourage people. A good church is one that really is edifying one another, lifting people up, and getting blessed because of it. And Paul's saying, I don't want to see destruction. I don't want to see lives being hurt. And I've seen the churches that have this whole process of destruction. You know, everybody's piling rules and laws, and you're not living up to this, and you're not living up to that, and they're attacking one another. Don't stay long in a place like that. I want to be in a place where people are being edified and built up. Wow, I love what God is doing in you. Look at that. You know, yeah, you've got some problems there, but you know, look at these other areas that your life you're, you're growing in. And I think this is important. You know, that's part of good correction. When you correct somebody, you also build them up and say, you know, because if all we do is tear somebody down and, and correct and correct and correct and never tell them that they're doing something right, it leaves people deflated. And I've seen bosses who do that, especially at work. They're always, the only time they ever talk to you is when they're criticizing you. And you get to the place like, did I ever do anything right at work? Am I ever doing anything good? Is there, you know, am I, is there anything you like about my work? And we need to hear that at times. And this is what Paul is saying. I want, we need to build each other up. We need that as people to be built up and encouraged. And then Paul ends his letter with a series of salutations. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, and of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the, commandment of the, whole, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Second epistle to the Corinthians was written in, from Philippi, the city of Macedonia, by Titus and Lucas. So he says, finally, he's getting to the end. Um, and he says, brethren, farewell. I'm ending this letter. Be perfect or be complete. You know, when we see the word perfect, it doesn't usually mean what we think of as perfect. It means be complete, be made complete, be, be made full knowing, and be of good comfort. Yeah. And here he's saying to them, uh, this word literally is called alongside. It's the same word as par paraclete, the Holy Spirit. I'm summoning you beside. Be local together. Be in union. Be in fellowship. And of one mind. This is what God wants us to be, one mind toward him. And it should be his mind, not our, any one mind. Because sometimes you get people of one mind, but it's whoever's the strongest one in the group leading the, the one-mindedness. And God's saying, I want you to be of my mind. Follow me. Understand my thoughts. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we will never fully understand God. I'm fully convinced that even when we're in heaven, we will not fully understand God because he is still going to be higher than we are. His thoughts will be outside of our thoughts. His thoughts will be greater than us. I really think we'll spend all of eternity learning to get to know God. And it will take all of eternity to get to know him because of how high above us he is. We're created. He's the creator. And I don't think we'll ever know everything he knows. And I know there's some people that say, well, when we get to heaven, he's going to teach us all things. Yeah, he will teach us all things, but I think it's going to be through all eternity that he's going to be teaching us because of who he is. And he goes, live in peace, that tranquil state. And this is something that is very critical for us. God wants his children to be at peace. Be just tranquil. 
not in chaos, not, not disturbed and everything. Why? Because he's in control. We should be the most peaceful people as his children because he's in control. And if I fully trust that he's in control, then I just say, okay, God, I rest in you. I have peace. Now, having said that, it's easier to say than to do. <laughs> but the more we believe that he is in control, the more peace we will have. And this is what he's saying, be at peace. And he says, the God of love and peace be with you. Or be in you. And, you know, this is so God loves. And this is the word agape. It's objective love. God chooses to love us. And the God of love and his peace is with us. And this is something important. We really do have to understand, God is with us all the time. We're looking in the book of Nahum this morning, and it talked about how God protects his children. God protects us, and this is the good news. Why can I have peace? Why can I have all of this? Because God is in charge. He is in control. He is with me. And as long as he's with me and he's in control, I can be at peace. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And this is what was common back in those days. Greet each other with a holy kiss in the Middle East. And even, some, even today in some European countries, they greet themselves with that little you know, kiss on, the, on each cheek. You know, for us, it's a handshake. You know, if Paul was writing to us, greet each other with a holy handshake, you know, or a hug or something. You know, it's, uh, and it says, don't, don't make it un, un, untoward, especially with a kiss. That was, you know, there's some people that just got inappropriate with the way they did these kisses. He goes, make sure it's holy, it's appropriate, it's the way it's supposed to be. And he goes, greet each other. You know, don't, don't be somebody ignoring one another. And this is, happens in churches sometimes, that people you know, don't greet one another. They're not, they're not excited about being there. And he says, greet one another. You're, you're a family. You know, make sure you're talking to one another. You're getting to know each other. And sometimes that just means we have to start. I've heard people go, well, you know what? I, that's, nobody's ever shook my hand. Nobody's ever talked to me. I'm going, wow, I don't, it's not my experience. How many people are you talking to? None. I'm just waiting for them to come to me. Well, if that's all you're doing, maybe somebody's eventually going to come up to you, but at least take some initiative. You might find out that they're pretty nice people. And this is what Paul's saying, greet each other. And then he says, all the saints salute you. He goes, all the people with me are greeting you. They're sending their greeting to you. And throughout the letter, he said, I'm sending this person, I'm sending this person, I'm sending this person to you. And he goes, oh, and by the way, all the people in Macedonia and Philippi are saying hello. And he's sending them. And then his last statement, and I love this because he's bringing the Trinity in this, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. He goes, God's grace, the grace we get through Jesus Christ, unmerited favor, all the stuff we get from grace. And I love that God gives us grace. Because I'd be in trouble if he didn't give me grace, because I'd have nothing. But because of his grace, I have everything. God's great riches. He's made us part of his family and says, it's all part. You get all of it. You get to go to heaven. You get the spirit in you. I'm going to give you life. And it's all a free gift. And this is something we've got to get more and more understanding of. Everything I have is because of God's grace, so I can't get proud about what I have. If I'm not proud about what I have, I can't be 
shoving my pride on you, and I'm going to be really happy that you're getting what God gives you, which allows me to start edifying people. The more I live in God's grace, the more I can edify and build people up because I'm excited. Wow, look what God, look at those gifts God's given you. And I'm not being envious and saying, well, man, I wish I had those gifts. It's God gave them gifts for whatever reason. And this is important. God gives each one of us gifts according to the way he wants us to, to work. Not according to the way we want to work. And he says, the love of God, God's love in us. You know, and this is precious because what is the mark of true Christianity is God's love coming out of us. We love one another. We love the lost. We're motivated to share the gospel with the lost because we love them. We're motivated to help build up others because we love them. And God's love, just choosing to love other people, not because they deserve it, not because it's even what my emotions tell me, but because I want to just love them. And then the communion with the Holy Spirit. I love that, the communion with the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, that communion is how we understand God's word. That's the, that's the voice in the back of our mind that says, this is the way, walk you in it. This is the one that tells us, I want you to say this to this person. I want you to do this. I want you to care for this, that communion with the Holy Spirit. All three parts of the Trinity are right here in this verse that, that Paul tells us. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, each one contributing different parts to our walk with him. Jesus providing the grace, God the, love, the Father the love, and the Holy Spirit just the communion, drawing us together and, t- and bringing us together with, in one with them. And you know, I don't know how it's going to work out in heaven and how we're going to be made one with God for all of eternity because we're his bride, but that oneness is going to be very special. An absolute oneness with God for eternity and just fellowship with him. In this world, when, they, when marriages break up, and divorce, they tear the soul apart because God says, I've joined you together. And when they pull themselves apart, they tear the soul. And there's ragged edges on their souls 20, 30, 40 years later. I've talked to people who who have been divorced for years and they still have that irritation, that hatred, that, that, that pain that what was supposed to be forever and real did not last. And then you meet people who have been divorced several times and they've really tattered their soul and they don't even hardly know what love is anymore they hardly understand what it is to be devoted to somebody and this is something that takes on great meaning God says I want you to be built up I want you to dwell and Paul's solution is live in grace live in live in God's love and live in the communion and each part of the paternity is bringing that into you and this is how Paul closes out that letter. He closes it out so tenderly with the people. You know, walk with God. You know, I've given you a lot of hard things, and he ends up being very gentle. Greet each other, edify one another, build one another up, live in grace and love, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. And that ends the letter of 2 Corinthians. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we choose which book to go into next and and start that study. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.